When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to World Weekly from the Financial Times. I'm Daniel Dombey. Turkey has gone through a historic referendum, voting to boost President Recep Tayyip Erdogan's powers in changes that would also allow him to stay in office until 2029. But the margin of victory was slight. The no vote triumphed in the country's three biggest cities, including Mr Erdogan's stronghold of Istanbul. And the opposition contests the results, with international observers joining in the criticism. I'm joined by Mehul Srivastava, the FT's Turkey correspondent, and Delphine Strauss, FT leader writer, and like myself, one of Mehul's predecessors in Turkey. Mehul, why was this vote so important? This was very much the culmination of almost a decade-long desire by Mr. Erdogan to try and figure out a way to tame the country's institutions into what he might call obedience. The presidential system essentially allows him to bypass parliament, makes him the most powerful leader in this country. That's something that he has wanted for a long time, and the previous constitution did not allow. And just give us a sense of what that means, perhaps, Delphine, in a historic context. I mean, how does the Mr. Erdogan today compare to the Mr. Erdogan when you were in Turkey in terms of what he's able to do in terms of the political obstacles and challenges that confront him? Well, it's a very different Mr. Erdogan from the early years when he had come in on a very sort of liberal pro-democracy platform claiming to be beating back the forces of the state in the army and the bureaucracy. He did do many things that won him recognition in Europe in the earlier years. And in particular, he made quite big advances in opening up a political process in the in the southeast, getting the Kurds on board. And we now see that he sees far more advantage in fomenting discord in that part of the country. The security situation has worsened markedly. And what once seemed like a reasonable balance between tamping down bureaucratic overreach is now pretty much suppression of all institutions. From my own point of view, because I was the correspondent in between both of you in Turkey after Delphine and before Mehul, it seems extraordinary to me just the no-holds-barred quality of Turkish politics. And I think sometimes people don't realise that. Mr Erdogan was fighting for his political life, wasn't he, in certain times in 2007-2008 when the army threatened a coup in 2007. There were attempts to close his party down in the courts. There were all sorts of machinations that they saw as a real and present threat. But what seems striking to me is just that Mr Erdogan was initially very constrained when he came into office, and one by one he has vanquished his enemies, except perhaps this last enemy that he's had, which is the movement called the Gulenists, who have many places in the state bureaucracy, who he once allied with, and he's really sought to strong-arm himself to fight against. And it seems very striking to me that the forces in Turkey weren't really um, institutions, they were different factions, and those different factions have more or less been vanquished. Mehul, why did people, given that Mr Erdogan is at the moment so ascendant, why did they vote to give him more powers, do you think? 
You know, part of the reason behind that is how effective Mr. Erdogan is at harnessing the narrative that all these factions and institutions are working against him and therefore working against his voters. He uses this phrase, milli irade, the national will, as a as a hammer to say, look, the people have asked me to do this. And now the Gulenists, the military, the Kemalists, the secularists, the courts are stopping me from achieving this, and I will overcome these obstacles. That became the overwhelming narrative of this referendum campaign, arguing that Turkey's political system was broken in such a way that it did not allow him to deliver the Middle Irade, the national will. That was his promise, and a very slim majority agreed with him. They remember a time when it was actually true that Mr. Erdogan would try and do things that the people wanted and not achieve them. It took him almost a decade to fully get rid of the headscarf ban, including in the military. That's something that a lot of people in this country wanted. You take that narrative and you reapply that to the question of national security right after a coup, a failed coup, of course, and the question of whether or not he is able to protect the country. And this narrative has a very strong hold on close to 40-45% of the population. All he needed was to convince another 5 or 6% more, and he did that by co-opting the nationalist opposition. And Delphine, we saw in this election, extraordinarily, Istanbul, which is where Mr. Erdogan forged his career, notably as mayor of Istanbul in the 1990s, voting against these changes. And this was a bit of a bittersweet triumph in that sense. And as we said, the opposition contests the results, talking about irregularities and uh, international bodies have criticised them. Why do you think this was so much harder victory than the 10 or 11 previous national victories that Mr Erdogan has scored? The most striking thing about this result is perhaps that despite the degree to which he has rooted out opposition from within the bureaucracy, from within the media, you know, all the forms of opposition you can sort of get a handle on, there is still half of the population that does not support him, does not like him, and, you know, will 49 point something percent will vote against him. And if one believes the results, which many contest then he has swung it probably only by these last few weeks of campaigning in which he chose the most divisive tactics he could, you know, whipping up nationalist sentiment and sort of picking fights with European governments. Right, so much so that he was calling European governments fascists and in some cases Nazis. And I guess the worrying thing about this margin of victory is that he will conclude that these tactics pay off and rather than, as some had hoped, taking a more conciliatory approach after the referendum and maybe turning his attention to some of the practical things that have been on hold, he is more likely to be remaining in combat mode. Mehul, I wanted to ask you about that because, I mean, in a certain sense, we've been here before. We saw a Brexit triumph by a very narrow margin or reasonably narrow margin, 52-48 in the UK. We saw Donald Trump win power despite losing the popular vote. So we've seen these very tight elections decided relatively narrowly internationally. And internationally, sometimes they seem to be campaigns against the old elite, which is part of Mr. Erdogan's fodder. Do you think that he is, as um, Delphine suggests, going to double down, uh, harden his stance now that he's won this election or now that he's got these more powers, now that he's been reminded that almost 50% of the population is against him? Will he soften at all? That is a question on everybody's lips here in Turkey right now. Mr. Erdogan was on CNN recently and he he revealed a little bit more of his political strategy. He He was asked about the result and he says, look, I come from a background in football. He used to play for Kashim Pasha, the football team here, um, and his answer was, the goal is to win. Mr. Erdogan 
Trump's victory, slim as it may be, is for him the only victory that matters. How he got here and how he goes from here is a different thing altogether. I know that within the AUK party, there's considerable consternation at the fact that this mandate was so small. And there is a lot of soul-searching about how to move forward so that in the next elections, you don't have the consequences of the slimness of this mandate. Now, the economy appears to hover over uh, a lot of these decisions. Unemployment is up to about 13%. For youth, it's up to 25%. And even though Istanbul is an economic powerhouse, the impact of unemployment, inflation, uh, other economic woes, the, the weak lira, are apparent. Now, Mr. Erdogan has a very clear choice in front of him. He can focus on the divisive policies that got him this narrow margin, or he can return to the policies that he had in the early 2000s, which were very economy and development focused. But remember, all these reforms, they take time to kick in. The, 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 the obvious, the payoff is not immediate. And while he still feels surrounded by enemies, uh, harangued by opposition, there's very little to show in his recent history that he's going to soften his tone. And the best example we can have is that the day after the referendum result, he went into a National Security Council meeting and he extended by another 90 days a state of emergency, this extraordinary state of affairs under which Turkey has lived since a couple of days after the failed coup last July. And the state of emergency is, in a way, it's a simulacrum, if you want, of his position when he does finally receive all these powers that the Constitutional Amendment has brought him. He gets to rule via decree, and the decrees can barely be overturned by a parliament that's mostly in his control. So essentially is a foreshadowing of how he intends to run the country. So if we're looking for any leading indicators of how he will behave, I think the extension of the state of emergency is very telling. And Delphine, just in terms of how this has gone down internationally, we've obviously had some criticism from OSCE election monitors. We've also had congratulations from President Donald Trump very soon after the vote itself with a phone call to Mr Erdogan. How has this gone down internationally? And what does this mean for Turkey's relations with the West that it used to be part of? There's understandably been a very cautious reaction from most of Turkey's main partners because there is a lot at stake for them. For the US, whatever the political situation within Turkey, they will need to work with them in Syria and work with them within NATO and do the best they can with what has become an increasingly unreliable ally to sort of muddle through. For Europe, it's far more difficult. There is the deal on migration to worry about. There are security issues and there are the very large number of Turks living within Germany, France, the Netherlands, of whom a majority approved the constitutional changes. So it's understandable that none of the European leaders have been wanting to stick their necks out too early. But there is a huge degree of concern and I think a recognition that the accession process is increasingly meaningless. It is not clear how it might end, whether Erdogan may pull the plug himself, whether the new French and German governments might move to do it. But it does seem increasingly likely that it will come to an end. And there is a lot of hard thinking going on about what might replace it. Yes, perhaps you could just talk a little bit about that, because after all, Mr Erdogan is talking about a referendum on the death penalty, isn't he, which would mean at the very least automatic suspension of that accession process. Are there any thoughts about what might replace that, perhaps vamping up the customs union that Turkey has with the EU, something that's being looked at already? The Commission already has a mandate to look at enhancing the customs union and maybe expanding it to cover agriculture and areas that it doesn't at present. That is challenging in and of itself because it requires a degree of political integration when it comes to procurement policy, competition policy. But there is very, very strong mutual interest. And it is also a way that would help 
to keep relations between Europeans and Turks of a pro-European bent in a sort of functioning state, even if relations at government level are going to be more difficult. Mehul, sometimes it almost seems as if Mr Erdogan has made the calculation that the West needs Turkey more than Turkey needs the West. But given that Turkey is just an indispensable partner in dealing with the problems of Syria and Iraq for the US and for Europe is an indispensable partner in keeping the three million plus refugees from Syria at home rather than letting them loose on Europe again, that Turkey is just in the riding seat in terms of its relationship with the West. But of course, Turkey is also very dependent on trade and investment with Europe. How do you see this? And uh, how do you think Turkey sees its relationship with the West after this election? You know, Mr. Erdogan is certainly betting that the hold that he has on the political realities of Europe right now will insulate him from any further blowback that this very contested referendum has had. The refugee issue is key. French and German elections are key providing logistical support through the Angelic Air Force Base to the United States and the coalition against ISIS is key. But there is a sense that Mr. Erdogan may have overplayed his hand here. There are many instances in which he has demanded and not received the sort of cooperation he needs, mostly in Syria, where Turkey has been largely sidelined, even though it has the second largest army in NATO right at the border of the war, simply because relations with the United States, in terms of who they consider a reliable fighting partner versus you know, a Kurdish militia that Mr. Erdogan loads versus the fact that the United States finds them a reliable fighting partner. The question of whether or not the Europeans and Mr. Erdogan can upgrade or downgrade, whichever way you look at it, the relationship to one that's more functional, more transactional, is one that he's betting on. Not only does Turkey benefit a lot from the customs union, it is the fifth largest trading partner for the European Union, And the European Commission people here in in Turkey tell us that it's been made very clear to them that the upgrading of this customs union is a priority for them. Whether or not they can pull that off because it has to go through the European Parliament is a different thing. But it implies that both Europe and Mr. Erdogan are comfortable in a relationship that's based solely on trade and not on trying to match up your political realities. And he said this before, I'd rather have a relationship that's based on trade rather than accession. So we're looking at a transformation of the relationship with the European Union one that's going to be far more based on shared trade rather than shared values. And just to round up, just a couple of questions for you both. Delphine, and apologies, this is anachronistic terminology and many may object to it, um, but was this the moment that the West lost Turkey, this vote? Perhaps there's a risk that it may become that. I mean, I guess the challenge from now is to find a way to keep the sort of real sympathy that's felt between a very large part of the Turkish population and the West find a way forward from here so that Turkish people of a pro-European bent do not feel that they've been abandoned. And I think finding a way for European institutions to keep some role in monitoring rights within Turkey, maybe try and keep some role in review of Turkish judicial decisions is quite important here. There is a risk, especially if the death penalty is reinstated, that the European court in Strasbourg will lose its oversight there. And that would be a blow to a lot of Turks who've looked to Europe to protect their rights in the past. And Mehul, just summing up, we have now Mr Erdogan, the most powerful leader clearly since Ataturk, Turkey's founder, and very likely to remain in office for another 12 years in addition to the um, 14 years that he's already served as the country's leader. 
How does that affect the really big issues that Turkey is confronting right now? It's a country that's fighting two terrorist campaigns against ISIS, against the PKK. It's a country in such a hugely important part of the world. How does that affect this general panorama? I mean, this general panorama has degraded and become a sore on Turkey's economy and its relationship to the West for about the last three or four years, as Mr. Erdogan has concentrated his political energy upon resolving the constitutional crisis that in a way he himself created by being a de facto executive president. Now you get to the point where he has to solve the problems that he promised he would solve. In Syria, he's largely sidelined. He's achieved a minor goal of stopping the Kurdish militias from having an uninterrupted swath of land and connect. But the questions that hover over that, the economy, relationship with Russia, the question of how you bring this country back together to some kind of cohesive union rather than a deeply divided and polarized nation, those are the large questions in front of him. And so far, he has yet to show his hand on whether he will return to the kind of large gestures and ingenious ways that he had in the mid-2000s to try and open talks to the Kurdish militants, to supercharge the economy through reforms, to reach out to neighbors to try and solve these problems. We haven't seen any evidence of that, but that doesn't mean he's not capable of it. The question is whether he's willing to do it or not. So still some huge questions to be answered in Turkey despite last weekend's vote. And Mr. Erdogan, as ever, is keeping many of us guessing. That's all for this week. Thank you very much indeed to Mehul Srivastava and to Delphine Strauss. Until next week, goodbye.